Well, good morning again. I know you already said it. You don't have to say it a third or fourth time. Uh, I'm Dave, and I am used to inter- introducing myself as community missions uh, here, but now I'm moving towards Phoenix and planting a church, as most of you know. So uh, thank you for praying for us. Thank you for supporting us, encouraging us. We love this church, and we're excited about what God's going to be doing um, as we make this move. One thing you know if you know me is I love the Word, so I'm so glad that I get another opportunity to sit in it with you and wrestle through it and struggle and read and try to understand what God has to say. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you can go to it. Um, we're going to continue in Esther today. We've been working through the story of Esther and her role as a Jewish woman that became a Persian queen. And let me also say Happy Mother's Day, by the way. I get my shot at it. Uh, my mother came last night, which was awesome. So I got to speak Happy Mother's Day to her directly. But Happy Mother's Day to all of you. And the good news is today's message has nothing to do with Mother's Day whatsoever. In fact, it might be the most manly message in the book of Esther. <laughs> Uh, Haman gets hanged. So, hey, uh, bring up the tattoo guy for the hanging. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I actually love this story, so I'm glad if I got a shot, this is the one I got. Uh, as many of you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Irish, Irish history freak, and if you know me, you knew it was going to get in there somehow. So one of the biggest events in Ireland's history happened in just the last century, Ireland had gone through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of British occupation and um, injustices and many other things, and they could never seem to win their independence from Britain, though they tried many, many, many times. They were just constantly crushed by superior forces. A man came along in the early 1900s by the name of Michael Collins that came up with a brilliant idea. Instead of facing the enemy head-on, instead of dressing in Irish uniforms to face a much superior British-uniformed force, they dressed like regular Irish citizens, and they would slip out of the crowd and attack the Irish forces, or the British forces, and then slip back into the crowd and disappear. And what really became known as uh, modern guerrilla warfare came from that. But on November 21st, 1920, The Irish Republican Army organized an operation by Michael Collins to systematically execute, all at the same time, these undercover British intelligence agents that were living and operating in Dublin. And there were 14 of them, and these men kind of spread out around town, sent by Michael Collins. They were all undercover, and they found where these men were staying. They planned this, and at the same moment, at the same time, they systematically uh, assassinated these undercover British intelligence agents. Later that afternoon, members of the British forces, in paranoia, went into a Gaelic football game and opened fire on the audience and killed 14 uh, other people and wounded 60, or 11, and wounded 60 And then that evening, there were three men in prison that were just accused of being IRA, and as a result, the police beat them to death, the British security beat them to death, and claimed they were trying to escape. It's amazing the level of paranoia that comes, and fear that comes from not knowing someone's identity, not being sure who is who. Ultimately, Ireland won their independence as a result of that. Ultimately, great victory came from that. Justice 
even judgment, some would say, because the whole world's eyes were drawn to Ireland and got behind them and supported their push for independence. Today we're going to look at identity as well and the life and death situations that occur when identities get revealed. I hope today you guys will realize that your identity has to be in Christ. It has to be in Christ and that our identity in Christ should be known even when we face death. Maybe especially when we face death. I'm telling you, when you trust in the Lord to bring victory to his name, it changes everything. Remember quickly before we read, Esther is queen of Persia, but she's also a Jew. Haman is second in command to the king of Persia, and he hates the Jews. In particular, he hates Mordecai, who raised Esther. And at the order of Haman, in the ignorance of the king who sanctioned it, Haman has ordered the execution of all the Jews. And Esther um, has risked her life going before the king uninvited and asking him for a favor. That favor is to join me for a meal and bring Haman. King and Haman come and join her for a meal. And she says, okay, join me for another meal. And then I'll tell you what my request is. All right. So that's where we are at. If you're in Esther chapter 7, look at uh, verse 1. And if you don't mind, stand with me as we read, as we're in the habit of doing here. Verse 1, the word of the Lord says, The king and Haman came to the feast with Esther the queen. Once again on the second day while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to the half of the kingdom, will be done. third time he said this. Verse 3, Queen Esther answered, If I've found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased... Spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, it's your word. It's not my word. There's no one in this room's word. It is your word. It's no man's word. It's come straight from your mouth, pinned down by men who loved you and listened to you. And I pray, Father God, as we read and as we study your word, that you know that you're worshipped and loved and respected in this place today. And I pray, God, that even though I have the privilege of holding a microphone and standing up here on the stage, that you're the teacher, you're the preacher, you're the speaker, because it's your word. Never let me add to it. Never let me take away from it. Let it stand for what it is. And let, let your name be glorified through it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you can have a seat. We're going to look today at justice. We're going to look today at judgment. We're going to look today at victory. And all of it coming through identities being revealed. And the thing is, when identities become clear, it's frequently a case of life and death. It becomes a question of life and death, especially if we're talking about your identity as a child of God or your identity as an adversary of God. All right? First point I want you to see from the text is that when your identity is found in the Lord, you find life in that. When your identity is found in the Lord, we find life. Remember, up to this point, uh, Esther's identity isn't known. Um, Esther 2.10, you don't have to go back there, but Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. So the king and Haman don't know her background at this point. But now she's come to the moment where faith has to become action. Now her faith, now she's come to that stage where it's time to go past believing to faith. What, what I mean by that is believing says, maybe you are here for such a time as this, period. Faith says, 
Maybe you're here for such a time as this, but he will certainly raise somebody to deliver us. Now, how did Mordecai, the one that said that, how did he know that? Because he knew God's word. God had made promises to the people, to the Jewish people, and he knew that. And he knew that it could be Esther, but if it wasn't going to be Esther, it was going to be somebody because God had made promises and he stood on that word. And Esther now has been gaining confidence, almost like Gideon and his fleeces that he had to have twice and always seeming to have some sign. Give me one more sign before I jump here, Lord. And and uh, even Moses, you know, when he was with the Lord in the wilderness, when the Lord said, go see Pharaoh and he's making all kinds of excuses, and God even showed him a couple of little personal miracles to give him some strength to go. I think Esther's been building up this same kind of thing. She's gone in front of the king's chamber, uninvited. She's passed that. She's asked for for a banquet. They came, and she said, okay, one more. But she's ready now. Look at verse 1. We'll go back through here. It says, the king and Haman came to the feast. That word feast, by the way, in Hebrew is pretty much straight the word drink. So you can imagine what kind of feast this is. Not so much Thanksgiving as a straight party with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even the half of the kingdom will be done. Let me just say there real quick, by the way, that phrase is always dangerous. Like it's almost word for word what Herod said to Salome in Jesus' time, his illegitimate daughter, and her mother, Herodias, asked Salome, hey, you got that offer on the table? Ask for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. That phrase is just a dangerous phrase when it pops out. Look at verse 3. Queen Esther answered, if I found favor, the word favor there is grace. If I found favor or grace in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And... Spare my people. This is my desire. Look at verse 4. For my people and I, now she's joined herself to them. My people and I have been sold. She's been sold. She's associating herself. Remember, Mordecai told her, don't think you're safe in that palace. Now she's outright saying, I'm not. I I have been sold. And that's true. Haman did pay a price for him. In chapter 3, it tells you he paid a fortune. She said, I've been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. Interesting Same three Hebrew words that Haman used in the edict that he sent out. So she's actually quoting Haman back to the king. No exaggeration, no lie. Identity is everything here. Is this Queen Esther of the Persians? Or is this a Jewish woman condemned to death? Yes. She's both, but she is Hadassah. She is a Jew. She's a Hebrew. She's an Israelite. She's a child of the living God. That's her identity. And she's Esther, queen of the Persians. Rabbi Reuven Hammer said this. He said, the very Persian name of the heroine Esther, Ishtar, in Hebrew means hidden or she that is hidden. And that's what she was. Hadassah hides herself as Esther. Indeed, there is a tremendous contrast between Esther and Mordecai. He's always revealed. He's even known to the king as Mordecai the Jew. He goes out of his way to publicly identify as a Jew, even though his name, too, is Persian and not Hebrew. But exposing her identity at this moment, Esther, 
laying herself out there at this moment is a picture of her ultimate trust in God, her ultimate hope that God is going to take care of this, that he's the ultimate king. Her identity is in him. She's entrusting her life to him and saying, I will associate with you. I trust you. Listen, if you're in Christ, it's not what you're able to do. It's who you are. Hear what I'm saying? If you're in Christ, if your identity is in him, it's not what you're able to do. It's who you are. Let me give you an example from Scripture. David, standing in front of Goliath, a little boy. By the way, you know he was already anointed king at that point. He was also in hiding, so to speak, undercover, so to speak. He was already anointed king, but he's a little shepherd boy and singing songs to a king in his shoes. And he faces Goliath. And what does he say to Goliath? He says in 1 Samuel 17, 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you. Now, I know he's got a sling and stones, but that's not what he says. He said, I come to you in the name of the Lord whom you have defied. The battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. It's not about what you can do. It's about who you are. Another one you're familiar with, Moses, I mentioned him already. You know, Moses' identity was hidden for the majority of his life. He grew up in the palace. Right with the Pharaoh until the point when God put him on the spot and said, I want you to go back, stand in front of that king and tell him to let my people go. In fact, um, both of those guys and Esther as well, they're pictures of Christ. They're, 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 They're pictures of Christ who intercedes for his people, even when the true adversary, Satan, attempts to bring death and destruction Look at verse 4, Esther 7. He says, if we had merely been, or excuse me, she, Esther goes on. She says, if we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. Got a pretty high level of respect for the king here. But her issue here is not slavery. This has got nothing to do with slavery. Her issue here is about annihilation. It's about life and death. Ironically, Haman labeled the Jews as traitorous and not worthy of the king's trouble. Esther brings her trouble to the king and labels Haman as traitorous. Totally flips it. She identifies him as an enemy, as an adversary. Um, That brings me to the second point. We find our identity in the Lord. We find life. You're going to see that. But also sorrow without repentance is of no value at all. Look at verse 5. King Ahasuerus, it's a Hashverosh in Hebrew, but I won't spit all over this microphone, so we'll sound it out in English. Um, King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? I, I figure he's shouting at this point, probably veins popping out of his forehead. Who literally devised that he's saying, who's filled his heart to do this? Who's committed their heart to do this? Because this is a life and death thing, this person, decision this person has made. Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Man, look at the adjectives in that one little short sentence. Adversary, enemy, evil. Man, she loaded him down. Haman stood terrified, literally is like gripped or overpowered by sudden horror. Imagine like immediately the color goes out of his face. If there's really such a thing as knees knocking, it's happening. You know what I'm saying? He is horrified before the king and queen. Not just the king. He's terrified of both of them now. 
She, she calls him these crazy words, enemy, adversary. Others translate it foe or hater. All those words are interchangeable. What comes to mind when you hear adversary? The man trying to get your job? Is it the team on the other side of the ball field? Basketball court, soccer field, whatever? Is it the guy, the boy that's trying to get your girl or the girl that's trying to get your boy? In this context, you need to think monster. This man is a monster. Richard Wormbrand um, wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. If you haven't read it, you should totally read it. changed my life years and years ago. Um, and there's a movie that came out recently that's incredible. But he was imprisoned with other Romanian believers in the 1940s, I think for 14 years. And the communists that imprisoned him made them suffer horribly, forcing starving rats into their cells through little pipes to gnaw on them so they couldn't sleep, red-hot pokers, uh, knives, stabbing weapons, carved off pieces of them, forced them to stand for hours in boxes that looked like coffins as they drove nails in them so that if they started to get tired of standing, they'd rip themselves on the nails. They even killed some of their children right in front of them. Didn't want, most cases, they didn't even want any information. They just wanted to hurt them. They just wanted to make them suffer at the same time. The Holocaust is going on. Hitler's doing his thing. And yes, it was almost entirely the Jewish, but not just the Jewish. He was after everybody in some sense. But systematically killing these Jewish people, not just killing them, but torturing them, abusing them, humiliating them. Raping them, stripping them, doing awful, horrible things, experimenting on them, dumping them in mass graves. Monsters. Jesus said, they will hate you because of me. If you identify with Christ, Jesus said, the world will hate you because of me. That's what she's dealing with. I'm not saying, what's the Haman in your life? I'm not asking you, what's that Haman out there that you need to overcome or stand against? This is life and death. You know, First Peter 5, 8, you probably know it. Be so reminded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone to devour. You know what devour means? You, know, you ever watch a lion devour something? It doesn't mean he wants to come poke at you and punch you, eat you, chew you up, consume you. Esther's monster is real here. And our monster, if you're in Christ, is real. It is real. He prowls around seeking to someone to devour. Some people say, oh, we don't see that in America. But that's likely because you don't pose him any threat. I can promise you he's in America. And by he, I don't mean just the devil. I mean those forces. I can promise you they are. Start threatening his kingdom a little bit and see what happens. But identity is always a question of life and death. And death may come. Listen to me, it may come. But if your identity is in Christ, if you're a child of God, nothing can take your life. You hear what I'm saying? Identity is always life and death. But even if you die, if your identity is in Christ as a child of God, nothing can take your life. It's just like these demons. You remember when the demons would run into the Messiah in the New Testament? And they would scream and they would freak out. He knew their identity. They were concealed in a person, but he knew who they were. And they were 
completely, completely exposed and they cowered in his presence because they knew who he was when the others didn't know who he was. Here you have Haman's identity completely exposed and he's cowering in the presence, not of Ahasuerus, but of Esther because her identity is exposed. Look at verse 7. The king arose in anger or wrath or rage and he went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. He walks out into the garden and Haman remained to beg the queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible or evil or harm for him. It's, it's a, it, literally the word evil. He realized that he, something wicked was about to happen to him. Why did the king walk off? I think he just got hit with a hammer. Probably, he's obviously he's furious, but he's probably processing this. I've been betrayed. I'm frustrated. He's probably also terribly embarrassed because he's implicated in this. Remember, he sanctioned the order. It's interesting that Haman doesn't chase the king, but he falls at the feet of Esther. Instead of chasing after the king, he falls on this Jewish, now he knows, Jewish queen. To beg her, Mordecai had told Esther, maybe she came into power for such a time as this, and now she's been called queen five times in these ten verses. Five times. And now the adversary of God's people is, I believe, laid out at her feet, begging for his life. Also, another thing in here, this is the third reference to drinking in seven verses. You get the idea the king is a drunk. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he, he seems to be focused on personal satisfaction. If you look back at the opening of the story, you don't have to go back to it. But in chapter 1, it tells you he throws a party that lasts 180, 180 days plus a week. They tack on another week because they just not quite got it done in 180 days. And it said in verse 7, royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to the royal decree. There are no restrictions. Basically what that means is the rules are this. There are no rules. And I think, and maybe I'm reading into this, I try not to do that, but I think Haman has taken great advantage of this. I think he's been like, yeah, you know what, let the king play with his toys, let him have his party, let him watch his video games, let him have his beer and cheese and do his thing. I'll take care of business. We'll give him all the credit for it, but I'll run the show. Let's just keep him happy and drunk and partying. And in fact, it's possible and probably even likely that the king didn't even know it was the Jews. Esther 3.8 says that Haman informed the king there is an ethnic group. And he only ever refers to them as they. And he gives the order, Haman does, and the king in the king's name. And then in verse 15 of chapter 3, after the order goes out, it says the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa went into confusion. I think this man was a drunk. I think he stayed out of it a pretty good bit. I think Haman probably contributed to keeping him out of it. But now that's all over with. All that's about to change. And Haman's standing paralyzed by absolute horror from both the king and the queen. Reminds me of when Nathan came to David. Do you remember this story? And David had been involved in adultery and murder. And Nathan told David this story about a rich man killing a poor man's lamb. And David said in great anger, he said, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And Nathan says what? You are the man. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
that is not Haman's response. How do you think Haman feels at this moment? Is he sorry? Sure. Is he scared? Absolutely. But what do you think would happen if he got out of it? Do you think he would be kind-hearted towards the Jews? You think that all the bitterness would be gone and he'd just be filled with love for the Jewish people? No chance. He's sorry. He's not a bit sorry for what he's done. He's horrified that he's about to die and he knows it. I'm familiar with this from drug addiction and working with drug addicts for so many years. The whole key to drug addiction is maintaining. So if you start to lose your ground or lose your freedom to be a drug addict, you got to say whatever you got to say, do whatever you got to do, twist whatever you got to twist, find whatever you got to find to get your level back down to where you can maintain again. And then you can carry on until something happens and then you play the same game to get back down to maintaining. You say what you have to say. And the way you know somebody's truly reached the end is when they begin to say, I'm guilty of everything. Even things they might be innocent of. I'm guilty. For instance, sorrow says, have mercy on me. Repentance says, have mercy on me for I have sinned. Sorrow says, don't take my life away. Repentance says, grant me life. Cast me not from your presence. Against you and you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart. You're just in your judgment, for I am guilty. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It brings me to the last piece of this. When we find our identity in the Lord, we live. When we sorrow without repentance has no value. And we trust in God because of who He is. Esther's identity is clear. Haman's identity is clear. Now you're going to see the ultimate king is. God has established that he is the ultimate authority. He's the only one worthy of being trusted in. And even this pagan king is an agent of God's hand. Deuteronomy 24 says, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. In Esther chapter 1, verse 1, the whole thing starts with the king on his throne ruling all these provinces. And Haman is now realizing that his king is not capital K king. And that Esther's king is capital K, capital I, capital N, capital G, king of kings. Travis Rand's been helping us a lot with our home. God, thank you for Travis Rand. I'll say that publicly. Um, getting ready for us to make this move. And yesterday or day before, I was working with him on some things, and we were talking. He was telling me this story about flying back from Atlanta to Chattanooga and it being kind of a bumpy flight and banging around a little bit. And he said as they were exiting the plane once they landed that, the, you know, the pilot stands in the door as you disembark, and the pilot was standing in the door of the cockpit and said it was a 10-year-old boy. And he was joking. It was a young guy, a young man. But he said, I looked at that kid and he said, I, I didn't see him until I was getting off the plane. But I'd like to have known that before I got on the plane. Um, sometimes we think we know who the pilot is. But you might better check before you put your life in his hands. And I don't feel like the king's innocent here. Ignorance, you know, ignorant behavior does not equal innocence. Ignorant behavior does not equal innocence. The fact that the king sanctioned Haman's actions, even if it was in ignorance, still shows you his simple condition. We think sometimes, hey, if we're doing something, but we're not doing it maliciously, it's okay. 
I know lots of lost people separated from Christ, but they're not unhappy. They don't lay in bed at night miserable, suffering, wondering, and they might even love life. But does ignorance equal innocence? No, not at all. Look at verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was fallen on the couch, daybed, where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen? It's a, it's a sexual word, really. It means to molest or assault in, in that way. And I don't think he was actually, I think he was falling on her feet or touching her. Remember, she went through a whole year of purification before she could come into the king's house. That was in chapter 2. So he's touching her in some way. That's enough. And he says, will will he actually do this while I'm still in the house? And as soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Perhaps they put a hood over him for execution. He's no longer worthy to look at the king's face for sure. I believe the king left the banquet hall in shame. I think he's in confusion. He's terribly angry to process what's going on. I think when he comes back, he's not alone. I think he comes back with, at the very least, the police, if not the executioners. And he walks in on Haman, and he's got all the proof that he needs, all the evidence that he needs. Verse 9, Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, um, he was listed in chapter 1 when Vashti was doomed, said, hey, there's a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai. Who gave the report that saved the king. Just drop that one more bomb on the man. And the king said, hang him on it. Hang him on that. Guess what? Esther wasn't alone after all. Even in the king's court. Clearly Haman was hated by a lot of people. And Mordecai was clearly well, well respected by a lot of people. They were just silent. MacArthur said three capital offenses were charged against Haman. One, he manipulated the king in planning to kill the queen's people. Two, he was perceived to have accosted the queen. And three, he planned to execute a man whom the king had just greatly honored for the extreme loyalty to the kingdom. Gallows here is an interesting word. It may have been mentioned before, but fact is the Persians were notorious for impaling people. And that word in Hebrew is really just a pole or a stake or, or even could be a tree that's carved or fashioned. Hanging, don't think about the wild, wild west. It means to fix somebody on it. So it's more likely that rather than a gallows with a rope hanging, we're talking about a large pole that he was going to have him nailed to or impaled on. Deuteronomy 21, 22. God said, if anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed and you hang his body on a tree, same Hebrew word, you're not to leave his corpse or on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Esther 7.10, they hanged Haman on the gallows, the tree, the pole he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger was subsided or his wrath was subsided. Psalm 915 just noted, it says the nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they've concealed. The Lord has made himself known. He's executed justice, snaring the wicked by the work of their own hands. You probably know Galatians 6, 7. Whatever a person sows, what? So shall he reap. Because the one who sows into the flesh will reap death or destruction from, from the flesh. But the one who sows the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. Read Psalm 37 later today. Think about this story and go read Psalm 37. I don't think they're relate, I don't think they were intended for each other, but they are amazingly similar. There's one true king in this story, 
And Esther's identity was found in him. She could trust him because his identity was king of kings, lord of lords. We commonly hear that the name of God doesn't appear in the story of Esther, but does that mean his identity is not in there? Have you seen him in the story? Have you seen him in what we're reading today? Let me give you a hint. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Listen, by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Am I saying that Haman is a picture of Christ? Let me ask you this before we go there. Every story, every good story, you find yourself drawn into a character in some way, shape, or form. Who do you feel like you are in the story? Are you the Jewish people? Are you the king? Are you Esther? Are you Mordecai? If you belong to him, you're part of the people of God. But we all start in the same place. We all start as Haman. Ephesians chapter 2 makes that crystal clear. Paul says we were following the devil. We were sons of disobedience. That we were by nature children of wrath. We all start as Haman, but God. Christ became sin, our sin. He was hung from the gallows, from the pole, from the tree, from the cross. Romans 5, 8, for God proves his love for us in that what? While we were sinners, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we become the righteousness of God. It's the flip of Mordecai. Mordecai was the innocent man that was saved from the tree and the wicked person was placed upon it. It's the great exchange. Christ, who is the innocent man, is hung on the tree for us, for me, for the wicked. And the action of Christ the Bible says, satisfies the wrath of God on our sin. That he's made peace by the blood of his cross. Let me close with this. In West Africa, years ago, I spent some time with Barry there. Um, Cody Richardson was there as well. And we were at a event that was um, for undercover, I guess you want to say, underground, under, undercover, underground um, believers I don't know if I want to call them pastors because most of them didn't have a church, but they were disciple makers. And they gathered in this place in order to um, worship together. And they had to smuggle themselves into this country where we were from other countries. And uh, I'll never forget meeting about four guys from one particular country. And they were showing me their passports. And we, I, I'm, the language they spoke and the language I spoke was not the same. So... We're doing our best to communicate, cut up, and talk. And I'm looking at their passports, and they're holding them up, and they just keep showing them to me and pointing at them and smiling and saying whatever they're saying. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool, you know. And then I finally, I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I can show you my passport. Is You know, what, what's the deal? Finally, I realized they're bragging on them because they were fake passports. They had made fake passports in order to smuggle themselves into this country for a brief period of time to be able to worship with these other believers. And the country we were in was not safe either. They were just with a bunch of other believers there. And I remember thinking, would you risk losing your life because of your identity? If it's in yourself, you already lost it. 
If it's in Christ, listen, you lost it too. But you gain eternity. If your identity is in yourself, you've already lost it. If it's in Christ, you died 2,000 years ago on the gallows tree cross with him. But you've gained eternal life in him.